beginning at verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and it is our desire to grow in our understanding of it and our practice of it, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, illumine our minds and uh, quicken our desires, work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. Enable me to preach your word faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the PCA uh, messenger had a, a rather uh, good observation, uh, if it might be a little bit on the inflammatory side, it still had some... Uh, good things to say, and it's not a Luddite uh, <laughs> observation, but it's just recognizing that there is a tendency when we have all of the conveniences around us that we tend to become present-oriented and no longer have to plan. But it says it is an unfortunate side effect of many modern conveniences that we so seldom need to think ahead. The grocery stores are open 24 hours. The microwave thaws the meat in minutes. The facts delivers the statistics in seconds. We can be practicing existentialists. We live only in this present moment. And you might not know what an existentialist is. It doesn't bother you at all that you're being called one. Uh, but uh, let me assure you, it's bad, okay? <laughs> and uh, what an existentialist is, is it's a person who really does not think that there is a meaning in the universe other than what I am going through, what I, what I am experiencing right now. Uh, history is not that important. The future is not that important. What counts for an existentialist, at least a consistent one, is uh, living authentically in the present, uh, what he is uh, experiencing in the now. And it's a rank heresy, and yet this writer very correctly observes that many Christians, even though they don't believe in existentialism, maybe they don't know what existentialism is all about, they are practicing existentialism to one degree or another. Now, they may object, hey, I believe in the past just as much as you do, Pastor Kaiser. I believe in uh, the, the crucifixion of Christ. I believe in, in history. And yet, because they are not learning from the past and uh, past lessons have not changed their present, in a sense, they're living like existentialists. They might say, Phil, I believe just as much in the future as you do. I believe in the second coming of Christ and and yet, because they are not driven by the future, they're so present-oriented, they are acting like existentialists. I think that's what he was uh, getting at. Our actions speak louder than our words. In Edward Dayton's uh, book on time management, he said, if you don't care where you're going, any road will get you there, and it really doesn't make any difference how much time you take. Now, that's existentialism in a nutshell. Um, it really is. Uh, a heresy, and I think we need to treat it as being serious. Now, some Christians will excuse this manner of living by saying, I'm living by faith. You know, I can't plan. I'm living by faith. You know, planning, they think, is being contrary to living by faith. I, I ran across um, a Christian family that was traveling from the East Coast to California, and they had uh, called me up, and they were asking for gas and food and money and stuff, and as I was asking questions, what was going on, um, 
they were saying, well, they're going to California for a job. And I asked them if they had a job lined up. And they said, no, we just thought it would be kind of cool to go to California. And I said, and you didn't have any money? No, we've just been living by faith and asking people for money all the way. I said, that's not living by faith, guys. And I said, if you need a job, I'll get you a job here in Omaha. Oh, no, they really wanted to go to California. They thought that was really cool. Now, that's maybe an extreme, but there's a lot of Christians that kind of just bump along life doing what they feel like doing at the given moment. They're kind of spontaneous, and they don't make any plans in life. And um, Scripture uh, has the strongest language against that sort of attitude. Now, I've given you an extended outline, and you can do some study on your own from that, but uh, I'm just going to very, very quickly go through this outline. I don't think we need to spend much time on each of those points. First point in your outline Romans 1.13 speaks of the need for planning. Okay? Too many people, I think, are spontaneous in just about everything they do. They're spontaneous in their meals. Uh, they're spontaneous in their trips, just about anything. They don't, just don't do planning. But notice what it says here. Now, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now that I might bear some fruit among you also. Uh, he was no existentialist. He believed in the future. He planned for the future. And beyond the obvious passages I've listed in your outline there, uh, you can read in the book of Acts all kinds of evidences of this. He had a very detailed itinerary for all of his different trips. That's a church planting strategy that um, Mission to the World is uh, using. Uh, he showed evidence of backup plans. You know, if this plan doesn't work, well, then I'll do this one. And he, he says that in the epistles. If the Lord hinders, well, then I'll go ahead and uh, I'll do this other thing. Uh, he shows strong ideas of which people would work best in this situation, which ones would work better in another situation. On one of his trips, when he split the team up into two, uh, some of them were traveling by land and some of them were traveling by sea, uh, he showed evidence of a very well-worked-out time management scheme so that both of these teams would be able to meet up and they'd be able to do their work as uh, they went by land and by sea. And so Paul left nothing to chance. He was a planner par excellence, and that's why I've used him as a model this morning uh, and Romans as our, as our textbook for this. And I think Paul wanted us to treat him as a model when he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, that I often planned. I want you to know the way in which I structure my life. Why? Because he wants them to be uh, imitating him. And for 2005, for this coming year, I would really strongly encourage you to make some goals. Almost every year around New Year's, I uh, give some similar uh, admonitions to people from various viewpoints, but I think planning is really important. Setting up goals for yourself academically, goals uh, spiritually, uh, socially, uh, goals for your family, goals for uh, the kinds of things you're going to do in terms of ministry. There's so many areas in which we ought to set up uh, goals. But also, point number two, to bathe those plans in prayer. Look at verses 8 through 10 here. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God uh, to come to you. Uh, he had repeatedly planned to come to Rome, 
and he was hindered, but he was praying, and he was asking them to pray that his plans would be able to come uh, to fruition. He bathed his plans in prayer. In chapter 15, Paul begs the Romans to pray that when he goes to Jerusalem, his ministry is not going to be cut off. He asked for prayer for his plans. And so prayer was not just a routine that Paul went through. Prayer was absolutely foundational and essential uh, to what, uh, what he was about. Um, he knew that God has determined to work through the prayers of his people, and that's why he stirs up the people to prayer, right? If our will is to line up with God's will, uh, it's going to be through prayer. You see, prayer is not getting God to change his will. That's the way some people treat it. Oh, Lord, you know, and they try to beg him hard enough that he'll change his will. God's will doesn't change. Uh, prayer is seeking to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. And that means that when we are making our plans, we shouldn't be praying, okay, Lord, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I've got my life all mapped out, and I hope you cooperate with me this year. No, our prayers should be, Lord, give me a sensitivity to your scriptures so that as I make my plans, they're consistent with scripture, they're consistent with your word, and I want to have a heart in my plans uh, that uh, glorifies you. And so it does need to be uh, totally bathed in uh, prayer. Point three, and we're moving through this outline real quickly. I want you to notice that Paul avoids two extremes on the subject of planning. In verse 10, we see that Paul is not passive when he thinks about uh, God's plans. While he is willing to submit to God's plans, anytime God makes a change or a hindrance, whatever, he's willing to submit. He does not give up on his plans just because there is a delay. Some people, because there are delays, they just think, well, it must not be God's will and uh, God's opposed to it. Well, it may be that God is wanting us to persevere. He's wanting us to adjust our plans in some way. Uh, some people take a very passive approach. They figure, hey, God's got the whole future mapped out. There's no point in my planning anything, is there? And uh, God says, no, human responsibility and divine sovereignty go together. In fact, the only reason we can make plans and expect them to succeed is because God is sovereign and this world has purpose and meaning. And so uh, we ought not to pit the one against another. He plans, God hinders him on his plans, and he says, okay, well, We'll see if uh, there's some other way of achieving these plans. He's not frustrated with God's purposes, but he continues to plan despite the fact that there are hindrances. He is not passive at all. And so uh, you can see that in that phrase there. If by some means I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Okay, Paul knew he was going to be arrested in Jerusalem. It had already been prophesied over him. So that's a done deal. He knows a part of God's plan. But he didn't sit back and say, well, I guess I won't be able to go to Rome then. I'm going to be crucified or something's going to happen in Jerusalem. All he knew was he was going to be arrested in Jerusalem, handed over to the Gentiles. But he didn't know beyond that. And so he continued to make plans to go to Rome if in some way, in God's will, it could be accomplished. And um, uh, you need to read in the book of Acts. I'm not going to read there today. But read the story. It really is cool how it all transpired. Just as uh, Agabus and other prophets had said, he was arrested by the Jews and was about to be killed by these Jews, torn apart when the Romans came and rescued him. And then they find out what's going on here. And so he's tried in various uh, scenarios uh, amongst the Romans. And this is a political hot potato. They want to get rid of him. So they say, well, we're going to hand you over to the Jews. 
And then he says, well, then I appeal to Caesar. Because if he's handed over to the Jews, he knows he's toast. So he says, I appeal to Caesar. Uh, and he may have actually had that thought out ahead of time. When he appeals to Caesar, he has a first-class ticket paid for all the way to Rome, right? Where his heart's desire has been. And um, he's even got a Roman guard to protect him from bandits or any other dangers uh, that are along the way. And then when he was in Rome, he's given a, a nice house. He's not in jail. He's in a house arrest. And he has free access, people to come in, to come out, to preach the gospel. He's released. He goes to Spain. And then um, later on, he gets arrested again, goes to Rome, and he gets martyred. And that's uh, a, a later story. But the point is that our plans may not always come to pass, but we should take Paul's cue and always make sure we keep planning. Don't be passive. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Acts 21. Let's just take a little bit of a look at that. Acts chapter 21 and verses 10 through 14. It says, As we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when he heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Paul knew he was going to Jerusalem, uh, and he knew it could mean his death. But um, uh, I want you to look at Romans chapter 15 to see that Paul still keeps planning. And despite the potential threat of death in Jerusalem, he has hopes and aspirations that uh, he may yet come to the Romans. Uh, Romans 15, 30 through 32. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. So uh, here's a situation that... Um, uh, uh, he knows he's going to go there. He could die. He's just saying it's not prophesied that he would die. He's saying, pray that somehow I'll be able to come to you and that they will not, uh, they'll not kill me in, in Judea. And so he gets his uh, first-class ticket to Rome. Later on, he's released uh, to Spain. And so don't pit God's planning against your planning. The two are perfectly compatible. They go hand in hand. Now let's move on to point number four. If your plans are to have any meaning, they can't be general and nebulous. And I think that's a mistake many people make when I encourage them to start planning. Uh, they make plans, but they're not measurable plans. And so at the end of the year, they don't really know if they've made much progress or not on those. Um, <clears throat> we need to be specific, but we also need to be realistic. And so don't have goals. Well, I want to glorify God with my academics this year. And I want to glorify God with my social sphere. No, make it specific. I'm going to glorify God with my developing my mind by reading a book every month. And then you might realize, well, that's not realistic. It's a very measurable goal. 
but I'm not going to get a book read a month, so every other month or uh, every three months, but some kind of a goal that can be measured at the end of the year. What kind of progress have I made? Uh, I want to grow in my social relationship uh, with other people by inviting somebody to my house once a month so that we can have fellowship together. I know I have a hard time having fellowship, and so this would be a way in stretching me in, in that sphere. I want to grow in my spiritual life by having at least a five-minute devotions every single day. I'm not going to shoot for the moon because it's going to set me up for failure. I'm not going to have an hour devotions, but I'm going to have at least five minutes, and if it goes longer, praise Jesus. But I want to have some kind of a goal uh, for my spiritual, uh, my spiritual development. Um, if you look in your outline, I won't even bother to read it to you. You can see some of the specifics that he wanted to have just on this little plan of going to Rome, some of the things he wanted to accomplish. Now, he had a totally different ministry than you do, so his plans, his goals are going to be different than yours are, but try to make them measurable, concrete, specific for 2005. However, here's point five. Before it's realistic to start making goals, you need to have a vision of what God wants you to do, okay? You need a mission statement. Now, the vision and the mission statement should be something that captures uh, the drive that is in your life. What drives you? And that, in turn, is formed by understanding a combination of your gift mix, um, what um, burdens God has placed in your life, what kinds of things He's providentially uh, uh, prepared you for, uh, your hopes and aspirations. I've got a mission statement for my life personally, for my family, for the church, for Dominion Institute. And it makes a big difference in what kinds of things I do in each one. There are different mission statements because there's different people that are involved in them. But I think it's very important to, 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 to have those. Uh, take a look at Romans 1 and verse 14, then we'll go back to 15. Here's a very brief vision statement for Paul. He says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. Now, that word debtor indicates there's something passionate about this. This is something he owes. There's a burden. There's something he feels bound by that drives him in his ministry, and it makes his ministry as an apostle different than Peter's ministry as apostle. Peter was <clears throat> given to the, the, the Jews, but he wanted to go where no man had gone before. He wanted to go to the Gentiles. Now, if you want to look at his mission statement, and it's repeated in a, a number of epistles, but look at Romans 15. And verses 20 through 21, he says, So I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, and here is his theme verse, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Okay, that was his mission. That was the burden that drove him, and it helped him to accomplish points number four and points number six. Unless you know where you're going, it's going to be very hard to make realistic goals, and it's going to be hard to prioritize those goals. Uh, now, nowadays, uh, doing up mission statements kind of gone out of vogue. Uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of businesses did mission statement and vision and all of that kind of stuff, and they quit doing them because it didn't seem to make much difference. Well, I think part of the reason for that was that you know, it was a nice, flowery, great-sounding mission statement, but it wasn't something what, that was passionate to what was driving that business. 
And I think if you do it to what is unique to you, what you believe captures God's call upon your life, it will drive your goals. It will be very, very helpful. It's definitely been uh, helpful for me. Okay, point number six. The sixth pattern in Paul's planning was that he prioritized his various plans. Now, this is very, very important because we're limited creatures. We can only accomplish a small fraction of the things that we would love to do. And by the way, you ought not to be discouraged if at the end of 2005, you only get 50% of your goals done. Uh, you know, people who are, are really driven people, many times their plans go way beyond what they can accomplish, but it's stretching them. It keeps pushing them forward. And so it ought not to be a discouragement uh, uh, for you. It's actually a good sign. Uh, but at the same time, we do need to be uh, somewhat realistic and we need to set priorities so that when we run out of money, we run out of resources, we run out of time, we can realize, okay, I need to put some of these lower priority goals on the back burner for a little while. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul uh, did. Without priorities, what we're going to have happen is we're going to be either tyrannized by the urgent uh, or by people, you know, breathing down our backs, or are we just going to do the things that we enjoy doing, and we're not going to be doing the things that are, are really important, but we don't like to do. And, and so if you don't have the priorities, you're, you're not going to know, you know, whether it's important to sacrifice this thing that you love to do and uh, to do the thing that's uh, more important. Um, and then you'll get to the thing that's important uh, many times too late. And Paul did not fall into that trap. His greatest desire was to go to Rome, but his priority list kept him from achieving that. And I'm going to prove that to you in a second here. Uh, it was not his top priority to go to Rome, but it was his longed for priority. And there's a big difference between the two. If you don't uh, make priorities, then the things that you want to do and love to do, yeah, they'll get done. And the things that you realize are important, they're going to keep getting postponed until... Um, it's too late. And I think there's real wisdom in this strategy. Uh, why don't you turn with me again to Romans 15, <clears throat> and let's take a look again at verses 19 uh, through 21. And we'll take a look at these priorities. Romans 15, beginning at verse 19. In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Jesus. Now, this includes the whole northwest uh, coast of the Mediterranean Sea, the west side of the Aegean Sea. Uh, it was a huge territory. Now, he's accomplished his goals there, he says. Now he explains why he's moving on to Greece. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he has not, was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand." Now, because of the nature of his call, he's doing evangelism in quite a different way than the other apostles uh, did. He could have taken a church in one of the large churches that he had planted and been the, the, the senior pastor there, and he would have done a knockdown, wonderful job. I mean, it, it, would, have, it would have been something that um, could have been a great fit for him. But because of his mission statement, he refused to do that. He continued to go. He was driven to go where there were no other peoples before him. And so this immediately rules out a lot of good ministries that could have been valid options. His life calling 
set the priorities. Okay, going on. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. From what reason? Well, he's saying, for the reason that I've been called to go to other places where no man has been before, I'm hindered from coming to you. So the, the, in chapter 1, verse 13, he said, I've been hindered from coming to you. He didn't tell you to tell them why. They might have been offended, you know, if he had told them, well, the reason why is you guys are a lower priority. And so he waits until he's gone through this gospel and explaining to them the fabulous mission that God has laid upon his heart. The thing that has driven him, that's been set upon his heart, means that until uh, he has accomplished these certain goals that God has given for him that are much higher priority, he can't come to Rome as much as he loves to come to Rome. Can you see where he's going there? <clears throat> so he says, this is the reason. Um, following godly priorities, uh, and my job's taken me longer than I thought it would, following godly priorities, I can't yet come to Rome. And I think we need to take our cue from Paul on this as well. Too often we base our plans on what we want to do, not on what we ought to do, or what somebody else wants us to do, rather than on what we ought to do. For Paul, up until this time, there were some key cities in Greece uh, that needed to be reached by the gospel, and if he had done what came naturally, just what he wanted to do, then there was a, he would have gotten far less done than he ended up getting done. Okay, verse 23. But now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, he's saying, okay, I've accomplished my work. I'm going to be moving on now. But notice Rome is still a lower priority. Verse 24. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So Spain was a priority, and Rome was intended to be a pit stop for Paul. Why? Because Rome already has a well-established church. Uh, but he goes on, he shows there's one more priority that takes precedence over his pleasure trip to Rome. Verse 25, but now... I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who were in Jerusalem. Skip down to verse 28. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Now, that's kind of a long exercise that we've gone through, but I want to at least give you a glimpse as to how it was that Paul set priorities among his plans. If you're willing to plan a carefully in submission to God's will, make detailed, specific goals for those plans, prayerfully establish priorities, you're going to be able to avoid a lot of guilt from people that they put on you. You know, how come you're not involved in this? How come you're not doing that? Uh, it's going to enable you to say, well, the reason I'm not doing that is because I believe in terms of my uh, mission statement and the plans that I have, these things have to come first. And I haven't finished those things yet. And they say, oh yeah, I guess those are pretty good, uh, important goals that you're involved in. Paul could have been made to feel very guilty for not going to Rome earlier, but he didn't. He was able to relax. And he was able to communicate to them the reasons. Uh, and, and you're going to be able to, like him, avoid the tyranny of the urgent and relinquish the good in order to do what's better for your mission. Now, the good you're relinquishing may be the better for somebody else but it's simply because of priorities. And before I began being involved in time management, goal-oriented planning, 
I tended to minister only to the squeaky wheels, or mainly to the squeaky wheels, and be driven by the tyranny of the urgent, and I can still fall into that. When I backslide on planning, boy, it's so easy to fall into that. And so I tended to feel guilty when I didn't do everything that everybody else thought that I should be doing, and I didn't have enough hours in the day to do it all, you know? You're just driven by the expectations of others. But when I have had careful planning, such as Paul showed here, then I've gotten much more done. I've done it more efficiently. I've done it with a relaxed attitude. I've avoided the guilt of not meeting other people's expectations. So it's, it really is worthwhile. And um, some of you may choose to ignore uh, the sermon this morning, but you can just expect what the results will be. Seventh thing to notice about Paul's planning is that he diligently worked his plans. It doesn't do any good to have a plan if you ignore the plan for weeks and months on end, right? Some people do that. They've got a great plan, and then they never look back at that plan. The plan does not drive them. And so we've got to get it into the schedule. We've got to work it. We've got to have it in concrete detail in our day-by-day lives. All the planning in the world is not going to do you a lick of good if you don't have the diligence and the self-discipline to put it into practice. Now, I don't know where I got this quote from, and it shows that my organizational skills still need to be brought up to snuff, but uh, I clipped this from somewhere, and I really like it. It says, wisdom is knowing what to do next, skill is knowing how to do it, and virtue is doing it. Okay? Um, wisdom is knowing what to do next, skill is knowing how to do it, and virtue is doing it. You cannot grow in virtue if you don't have planning, but without virtue, you're not going to... Uh, you know, be actually putting your plans into practice. Okay, Romans 1.13 indicates not only do we need to work the plans, sometimes we need to rework them because God hinders providentially our being able to carry them out. And sometimes we have to rework them several times. He says, I often planned to come to you. Plan A didn't work. He went on to plan B. Don't be embarrassed when your plans don't, you know, fall out the way that you intended them to. Many of Paul's plans did not fall out the way he intended them to either. Uh, there's no shame in, in that. That just proves you're a limited creature. Only God's plans always work out. And if you are too prideful to admit that uh, you, you, know, you, you, you never have failures in your plans, you're acting like God, right? We just have to realize God's sovereign. He can change our plans any times that He wants, but we still have to do the planning. He expects us to do that. Um, the true shame comes when you fail to plan. Uh, one person says, no one plans to fail, but many people fail to plan. Now, the last point simply shows that planning is essential to success. There are other things that are essential to success, too. Uh, God's blessing on what we're doing, obviously. That's why we started with prayer. But planning is absolutely essential. And uh, if we don't plan, our life can only offer up to God at the judgment seat a fraction of what we would otherwise be able to offer up. Uh, Romans 1.13, I often plan to come to you, dot, 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 here's the reason, that I may, might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. And Paul had awesome fruit among the other Gentiles. And so he's planning here for them so that he will have awesome fruit among the Romans as well. And uh, I think it would just be an awesome thing if we could accomplish, uh, you know, uh, the kind of success that Paul had. 
Uh, I, I don't have anywhere near the kind of success that Paul had, but I am determined to be better in my planning because I want fruit in my life. I want more fruit to redound uh, to God's glory. And so this morning, if you have been convicted that you indeed have been engaged in the heresy of um, just living from the moment, what's the next thing that's driving me? Uh, and you're an existentialist, I want you to repent of your existentialism and receive forgiveness from Christ, lay it at the cross of Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I want to follow after you. I want to make plans for this coming year. I want these plans to be realistic, but I want them to uh, be very concrete as well. Let me end with two of Jonathan Edwards' daily resolutions. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live, Resolved never to lose one moment of time to improve it to the most profitable way I can. May those be our resolutions as well. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word and where it brings conviction. I pray that you would help us to redeem the time as you commanded in Ephesians, uh, knowing that the days are evil. Help us, Father, to resist our fleshly impulses that uh, make us have lack of self-discipline and help us, Father, to have such a vision of what you want in our lives and uh, such a clearly articulated uh, mission statement that uh, we would indeed uh, be driven by the right goals and not constantly deflected to and fro by every wind of desire within us and desires of other people around us. Help us, Father, to honor and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.